0: Chapter 32 of The Maid of Scar. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Maid of Scar by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter 32 Among the Savages. At this moment it became a very nice point to perceive what was really honest and right, and then to carry it out with all that fearless alacrity which, in such cases, I find to be, as it were, constitutional to me. My high sense of honour would fain persuade me to keep in strictest secrecy that which, so far as I could judge, was not or might not have been intended for my eyes or ears or tongue on the other hand my still higher sense of duty to my employer which is a most needful and practical feeling and that power of loyalty which descends to me and perhaps will die with me as well as a strong and no less ancestral eagerness to be up to the tricks of all mysterious beings i do not exaggerate when i say that the cutwater of my poor mind knew not which of these two hands pulled the stronger oar in short being tired and sleepy and weary and worn out with want of perceiving my way although i smoke three pipes all alone not from the smallest desire for them but because i have routed the devil thus many and many a night i know as the priests do with their incense the reason of which i take to be that having so much smoke at home he shuns it when coming for change of air growing dreamy thus I said, with nobody to answer me, I will tumble into my berth, as this dirty craft has no room for hammocks, and between parson and captain I will leave my dreams to guide me. I played with myself in saying this, no man ever should play with himself, it shows that he thinks too troublesomely, and soon may come if he carries it on, almost to forget that other people are nothing, while himself is everything.' and if any man comes to that state of mind, there is nothing more to hope of him. I was not so far gone as that. Nevertheless, it served me right for, thinking such dreadful looseness, to have no broad fine road of sleep in the depth whereof to be borne along and lie wherever wanted, but instead of that to toss and kick with much self-damage and, worst of all, to dream such murder that I now remember it what it was belongs to me who paid for it with a loss of hair very serious at my time of life however not to dwell upon that or upon myself in any way such being my perpetual wish yet thwarted by great activity let it be enough to say that parson Chowne, in my visions came and horribly stood over me therefore arising betimes i hired a very fine horse and manning him bravely laid his head east and by south as near as might be according to our binnacle. But though the wind was abaft the beam and tide and all in his favour and a brave commander upon his poop, what did he do but bouse his stem and run out his spanker driver and up with his taffrail as if I was wearing him in a thundering heavy sea? I resolved to get the upper hand of this uncalled-for mutiny, and the more so because all our crew were gazing, and at the fair I had laid down the law very strictly concerning horses. I slipped my feet out of the chains, for fear of any sudden capsize, and then I wrapped him over the catheads where his anchor ought to hang. He, however, instead of doing at all what I expected, up with his bolt-sprit and down with his quarter, as if struck by a whale under his forefoot, this was so far from true seamanship and proved him to be so unbuilt for sailing that I was content to disembark over his stern and with slight concussions. Never say die has always been my motto and always will be. Nailing my colours to the mast, I embarked upon another horse of less than half the tonnage of that one who would not answer helm and this craft being broken-backed with a strange sound at her portholes could not under press of sail bowl along more than four knots an hour and we adjusted matters between us so that when she was tired i also was sore and therefore disembarked and towed her until we were both lit for sea again therefore it must have been good meridian when i met parson chowne near his house this man was seldom inside his own house except at his meal-times or when asleep but roving about uncomfortably seeing to the various trifles everywhere abusing or kicking everybody and but for the certainty of his witchcraft ninefold powerful as they told me when conferred upon a parson and the black strength of his eyes and the doom that had befallen all who dared to go against him the men about the yards and stables told me when he was miles away that they never could have put up with him for his wages were also below their deserts he came to me from the kennel of hounds which he kept not for his own pleasure so much as for the delight of forbidding gentlemen whenever the whim might take him so especially if they were nobly accoutred from earning at his expense the glory of jumping hedges and ditches now as he came towards me or rather beckoned for me to come to him i saw that the other truly eminent parson the reverend john rambone was with him and giving advice about the string at the back of a young dog's tongue although this man was his greatest friend master chowne treated him no better than anybody else would fare but signed to the mate of the hounds or whatever those fox-hunters call their chief officer to heed every word of what rambone said because these two divines had won faith throughout all parishes and hundreds chown for the doctrine of horses and for discipline of dogs john rambone his reverence fixed a stern gaze upon me because i had not hurried myself a thing which i never do except in a glorious naval action and then he bade me follow him. This I did, and I declare, even now I cannot tell whither he took me, for I seem to have no power in his presence, of heeding anything but himself. Only I know that we passed through trees, and sat down somewhere afterwards. Wherever it was, or may have been, so far as my memory serves, I think that I held him at bay some little." for instance i took the greatest care not to speak of the fair young lady inasmuch as she might not have done all she did if she had chanced to possess the knowledge of my being under the willow-tree but parson chowne without my telling knew the whole of what was done and what he thought of it none might guess in the shadowy shining of his eyes you have done pretty well on the whole he said after asking many short questions but you must do better next time my man you must not allow all these delicate feelings chivalry resolute honesty and little things of that sort to interfere thus with business these things do some credit to you, Llewellyn, and please you, and add to your happiness, which consists largely with you, as it does with all men, in conceit. But you must not allow yourself thus to coquette with these beauties of human nature. It needs a rich man to do that. Even add my five shillings to your own four, and you cannot thus go to Corinth i had been at corinth twice and found it not at all desirable so i could not make out what his reverence meant except that it must be something bad which at my time of life should not be put into the mind even by a clergyman but what i could least put up with was the want of encouragement i found for all my better feelings these seemed to meet with nothing more than discouragement and disparagement whereas i knew them to be sound substantial and solid and i always felt upon going to bed what happiness they afforded me and if the days of my youth had only passed through learned languages latin and greek and hebrew i doubt whether even parson chowne could have laid his own will upon me so supposing then that your reverence should make it ten i answered with my own four that would be fourteen i can truly believe that it would my man and you may come to that if you go on well now go into the house and enjoy yourself you welshmen are always hungry and you may talk as freely as you like which is your next desire every word you say will come back to me and some of it may amuse me if you have no sense you have some cunning you will know what things to speak of and be sure that you wait until i come back this was so wholly below and outside of the thing which i loved to reconcile with my own constitution having so long been respected for them as well as rewarded by conscience that i scarcely knew where or who i was or what might next come over me and to complete my uncomfortable sense of being nobody i heard the sound of a galloping horse downhill, as wild as could be and found myself left as if all the ideas which i was prepared to suggest were nothing however that was not my loss but his so i entered the house with considerable hope of enjoying myself as commanded for this purpose i have always found it in the house of a gentleman the height of luck to get among three young women and one old one the elderly woman attends to the cooking which is not understood by the young ones or at any rate cannot be much expected while on the other hand the young ones flirt in and out in a pleasant way laying the table and showing their arms which are of a lovely red as good as any gravy and then if you know how to manage them well with a wholesome deference to the old cook and yet an understanding while she is basting and as one might almost say behind her back a confidential feeling established that you know how she treats those young ones and how harshly she dares to speak if a coal comes into the dripping-pan and in casting it out she burns her face and abuses the whole of them for her own fault also a little shy suggestion that they must put up with all this because the old cook is past sweethearting time and the parlour maid scarcely come to it accompanied by a wink or two and a hint in the direction of the stables some of the very noblest dinners that ever i made have been thus introduced but what forgiveness could i expect or who would listen to me if i dared to speak in the same dinner hour of the goodly kitchen at candleston court or even at court isha and the place that served as a sort of kitchen so far as they seemed to want one at this nympton rectory a chill came over every man directly he went into it and he knew that his meat would be hocks and bones and his gravy if any would stand cold dead However. I made the best of it, as my manner is with everything, and though the old stony woman sat and seemed to make stone of every one, I kept my spirits up and became, in spite of all her stoppage, what a man of my knowledge of mankind must be among womankind. In a word, though, I do not wish to set down exactly how I managed it. In half an hour I could see, while carefully concealing it, that there was not a single young woman there without beginning to say to herself, Should I like to be Mrs. Llewellyn? After that I can have them always, but I know them too well to be hasty. No prospects would suit me at my time of life unless they came after some cash in hand. The louts from the stables and kennels poured in, some of them very degustant, as my bardie used to say. Nevertheless, the girls seemed to like them. And who was I, even when consulted, to pretend to say otherwise?' In virtue of what I had seen among barbarous tribes and everywhere, and all my knowledge of ceremonies and the way they marry one another, it took me scarcely to half an hour, especially among poor victuals, to have all the women watching for every word I was prepared to drop. Although this never fails to happen, yet it always pleases me, and to find it in Parson Chowne's kitchen go thus, and the stony woman herself compelled to be bitten by mustard for fear of smiling and two or three maids quite unfit to get on without warm pats on their shoulder-blades, and the dogs quite aware that men were laughing and that this meant luck for them if they put up their noses, it was not for me to think much of myself, and yet how could I help doing it? In the midst of this truly social joy and natural commune over vittles and easing of thought to suit one another in the courtesies of digestion and just as the slowest amongst us, began to enter into some knowledge of me. In walked that great parson Rambone, with his hands behind his back, and between them a stout hunting crop. The maidens seemed to be taken aback, but the men were not much afraid of him. What a rare royster you are making! Out by the kennel, I heard you. However can I write my sermons? Does your reverence write them in the kennel? Thus the chief huntsman made inquiry, having a certain privilege clear out clear out said rambone fetching his whip toward all of us i am left in authority here and i must have proper discipline mrs steelyard i am surprised at you girls you must never go on like this what will his reverence say to me come along with me thou villain welshman and give me a light for my pipe if you please it was a sad thing to behold a man of this noble nature having gifts of everything whether of body or heart or soul only wanting gift of mind, and for want of that alone, making wreck of all the rest. I let him lead me, while I felt how I longed to have the lead of him, but that was in stronger hands than mine. Come, and I'll show thee a strange sight, Taffy, he said to me, very pleasantly, as soon as his pipe was kindled, only I must have my horse to inspire them with respect for me, as well as to keep my distance. Where is thy charger, thou valiant? Taffy. I answered his reverence that I would rather travel afoot if it were not too far. Neither could he persuade me after the experience of that morning to hoist my flag on an unknown horse, the command of which he offered me. So forth we set, the parson on horseback and in very high spirits, trolling songs, leaping hedges, frolicking enough to frighten one, and I on foot, rather stiff and weary, and needing a glass of grog without any visible chance of getting it. Here, you despondent taffy, take this, and brighten up a bit. It is true you are going to the gallows, but there is no room for you there just now. I saw what he meant, as he handed me his silver hunting flask, for they have a fashion about there of hanging bad people at crossways, and leaving them there for the good of others, and to encourage honesty. And truly the place was chosen well, for in the hollow... "'not far below it might be found those savage folk "'of whom I said something a good while ago. "'And I did not say then what I might have said "'because I felt scandalized "'and unwilling to press any question of doubtful doings "'upon thoroughly accomplished people, "'but now I am bound, like a hospital surgeon, "'to display the whole of it. "'Take hold of the tail of my horse, "'old Taffy,' said his reverence to me, "'and I will see you clear of them.' have no fear for they all know me by this time we were surrounded with fifteen or twenty strange-looking creatures enough to frighten anybody many fine savages have i seen on the shores of the land of fire for instance or on the coast of guinea or the gulf of panama and in fifty other places yet none did i ever come across so outrageous as these were they danced and capered and caught up stones and made pretense to throw at us and then with horrible grimaces showed their teeth and jeered at us scarcely any of the men had more than a piece of old sack upon him and as for the women the less i say the more you will believe it My respect for respectable women is such that I scarcely dare to irritate them by not saying what these other women were as concerns appearance, and yet I will confine myself as if of the female gender to a gentle hint that these women might have looked much nicer if only they had clothes on. But the poor little piccaninnies, as the niggers call them, these poor little devils, were far worse off than any hatch of negroes or maroons or copper colours anywhere in the breeding-grounds, not so much from any want of tendance or clean management, which none of the others ever got, but from difference of climate and the moisture of their native soil. These little creatures, all stark naked, seemed to be well enough off for food of some sort or another, but to be very badly off for want of washing and covering up and their little legs seemed to be growing crooked the meaning of which was beyond me then until i was told that it took its rise from the way they were forced to crook them in to lay hold of one another's legs for the sake of natural warmth and comfort as the winter-time came on when they slept in the straw altogether i believe this was so but i never saw it the rev john rambone took no other notice of these people than to be amused with them he knew some two or three of the men and spoke of them by their nicknames such as brownie or horsehair or sandy boy and the little children came crawling on their bellies to him this seemed to be their natural manner of going at an early age and only one of all the very little children walked upright This one came to the parson's horse, and, being still of a tottery order, laid hold of a foreleg to fetch up his own, and, having such moorage, looked up at the horse. The horse, for his part, looked down upon him, bending his neck as if highly pleased, yet with his nostrils desiring to snort, and the whole of his springy leg quivering, but trying to keep quiet, lest the baby might be injured. This made me look at the child again, whose little foolish life was hanging upon the behaviour of a horse." the rider perceived that he could do nothing in spite of all his great strength and skill to prevent the horse from dashing out the baby's brains with his fore hoof if only he should rear or fret and so he only soothed him but i being up to all these things and full for ever of presence of mind slipped in under the hold of the horse as quietly as possible and in a manner which others might call at the same time daring and dexterous i fetched the poor little fellow out of his dangerous position well done taffy said parson jack i should never have thought you had sense enough for it you had a narrow shave my man For the horse, being frightened by so much nakedness, made a most sudden spring over my body before I could rise with the child in my arms, and one of his after-hoofs knocked my hat off, so that I felt truly thankful not to have had a worse business of it, but I would not let any one laugh at my fright. A miss is as good as a mile, your reverence. Many a cannon-ball has passed me nearer than your horse's hoof, tush a mere trifle, will your reverence give this poor little man a ride and with that i offered him the child upon his saddle-bow naked and unwashed and kicking keep off or you shall taste my horsewhip keep away with your dirty brat and yet o poor little devil if i only had a cloth with me for this parson was of tender nature although so wild and reckless and in his light way he was moved at the wretched plight of this small creature and the signs of heavy stripes upon him not all over him as the parson said being prone to exaggerate but only extending over his back and his hands and other convenient places and perhaps my jacket made them smart, for he roared every time I lifted him, and every time I set him down he stared with a wistful kind of wonder at our clothes and at the noble horse as if he were trying to remember something. Where can they have picked up this poor little beggar? said Parson Jack, more to himself than to me. He looks of a different breed altogether. I wonder if this is one of Stoyle's damned tricks. And all the way back he spoke never a word, but seemed to be worrying with himself. But I, having set the child down on his feet and dusted my clothes and cleaned myself, followed the poor little creature's toddle and examined him carefully. The rest of the children seemed to hate him, and he to shrink out of their way almost, and yet he was the only fine and handsome child among them. For in spite of all the dirt upon it, his face was honest and fair and open, with large soft eyes of a dainty blue, and short thick curls of yellow hair that wanted combing sadly and though he had rolled in muddy places as little wild children always do for the sake of keeping the cold out his skin was white where the mud had peeled and his form lacked nothing but washing chapter thirty two